When you meet somebody new, what is the question that they are most likely to ask of you or you are most likely to ask of them? I don't know about you, but it's my experience that whenever I meet somebody or they meet me, the question that always comes up is, well, what do you do? And there's a sense in which we think that our identity is tied very closely to our work, to our occupation, to that which we do. It's interesting, especially for me, when when you're a pastor, you guys don't all get to have this experience, but whenever I meet somebody and, and they ask what I do and I tell them that I'm a pastor, their reaction is almost invariably the same. They say, well, I go to such and such a church. And that's fine. I suppose they're just looking for a way to make a connection with me and, and to have that. I, I actually had one time, it was even funnier than that, I thought. I was in seminary at the time. And, and while I was in seminary, I worked part-time at Starbucks. And one of my coworkers and I were having a conversation. And, and I, I mentioned to him that I was in seminary training to become a pastor. And, and his response was, oh, um... Well, I watch Seventh Heaven on TV. It's a fine enough TV show, I guess. People look for any way that they can connect to that. But uh, for many still, our job and our identity are wrapped up together. They're intertwined. But when we turn to the pages of Scripture, we see that though work is extremely important, it is not where we are ultimately to find our identity. This morning as we look in Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible, we'll see that work is important, but not where our identity should be found. We read about Adam, who was created by God, our common ancestor, our common representative, one who we read about in Luke 3, as it speaks through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it says of Adam that he was the son of God, if you will, having been directly created by God. It's incumbent upon us to come to this text with the greatest amount of seriousness and to see what it has for us in regards to what it says about work. There is a copy in your bulletin, by the way, that has this text. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It's in there if you would like to follow along. You don't have to, but there is also a little bit of space for you to take notes, and I just wanted to make you aware of that. I forgot to mention that at the beginning. But if you'd like to, please follow along now as I read from Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole of the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that as we look at this passage of Scripture today and see what it has to say about work, that we might be able to have it applied to our lives by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us through your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text deals with work. And so I thought it might be an appropriate text for us on Labor Day weekend, as we are thinking about Labor Day. We, we look at it, and, and it answers questions for us about work. And one of the key questions I feel about work is, why do we work? Now, I think that many of us and most in the world would probably answer, if we were honest with ourselves, we work to earn a living so that we can do the things that we really want to do, the things that really are enjoyable and fulfilling to us. That's why we work, most of us. But... Although there is nothing wrong with earning a living, it's certainly something that we have to do, I would argue that this passage of Scripture shows us that that is not the ultimate reason that we ought to work, that there are deeper, better reasons for us to work. And we see those reasons when we turn to the book of Genesis, when we turn to this book of origins, this book of origins of of how the world was created, the book of Origins of Man, the book that contains the origins of work. And we see in this chapter specifically that we work because work is God's gracious condescension to man. We work because work is God's glory made apparent in man. And we work because work is God's good mandate given for man. First of all, God's gracious condescension to man. We see here, where I started in verse 4, it's actually the start of a new section, and it's kind of a shame the way the Bible chapters were broken here, because verses 1 through 3 should actually be part of the first chapter. We start a new section, we know that because of these words we see here, the, these are the generations of, or some versions say, this is the history of. This phrase appears ten times throughout the book of Genesis, each time marking off a new section division. And so we see that we're starting, it's kind of a key that alerts us to the fact Oh, we're starting to look at something new here. We're starting to look at, at something that's begun here. But you might say, wait a second, what, what's begun here? It's talking about creation, and, 
And in chapter 1, God already talked about the creation. And so what exactly is it? And I think what's happened here is in in chapter 1, we see kind of a wide-angle view of of what creation was like. And now in chapter 2, it's a more narrowed perspective, narrowing in specifically on the man and what, what it was like when God created man and what his intent was and what his purposes were specifically for the man. And so it's, it's gone from that wide-angle lens view of chapter 1 to a more narrow, close-up view in chapter 2. And we see in this passage, in the day that the Lord God made the earth in the heavens. It's interesting to note also here that we've got the Lord God is the one who is acting. In chapter 1, when it talked about the creation, it spoke of how God created the heavens and the earth. But, but here we have a, a further designation. It's not just God who created all these things, not just some unnamed deity, but rather the Lord God. And whenever we see the word Lord in our Bibles, all in caps, what that means is it's designating the, the personal name of Yahweh or Jehovah. And so we know that, that what the original audience is attended to understand here as Moses has written this, and he is giving it to the people of Israel as they are wandering in the wilderness. He's given it to them and saying, the God who created all things is that same redeeming God of Israel. Specifically, the God who has delivered you out of bondage in Egypt and is taking you to the promised land. That is the God of creation. That is the God he speaks about. And he speaks about a time in verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And he says that this happened for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, and there was no man to work the ground. You see, the, the context here, the reason is that God gives that this hadn't happened yet is because his purpose in, in creating this proper garden is that it would be brought about by by a work of man and God working together in cooperation with one another. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and at the same time, there was no man to work the ground. Now, let me be clear. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God does not require our work to be able to, to do the things he wants to accomplish. He doesn't require our assistance to make him able. He is the one who created the entire universe up to this point and had done so merely by the power of his word. Could he not have also just spoken the garden into existence and had it flourish throughout all of the creation? Indeed he could have. That would have been no problem. He could have done it without breaking a sweat. But God invites us to play a role. He invites us to be a part. It's not altogether different than than if you're a parent and you have your little child, maybe two or three years old, maybe you're a mother making cookies, and your two-year-old child you invite over to help with making the cookies. Do you get done with the cookies quicker because that child's helping you? No, probably not. Is, is there anything that that child adds to the process that, that makes it easier or, or makes the cookies better? No, no, probably not. 
Or perhaps you're a father and you're, you're building something and, and you have your, your little three-year-old son come over and, and have him help you out with your construction project. Again, does that speed the work along? No. You could probably get done with the project quicker without him. Why is it then that you invite your child to come be a part of this work? Well, part of it is so that they could learn how to do things. They could learn how to, to order their steps and be able to do these things that you are doing. So you are teaching them something. But I think even more important than that, what a parent is doing in that scenario is they are developing and deepening a relationship with their child. And so it is when God invites Adam to do work with him. He is looking to develop and deepen his relationship with the man. He is wanting that relationship to be deepened. And just as it was in the garden, so it is in God's work in the world today. He doesn't need us to help him, but yet he somehow, for some reason, graciously allows us to play a part. And that reason, I would argue, is he's looking to develop a relationship with us. He wants it to go deeper. He wants us to depend on him, to count on him, to learn from him, to know him more intimately, to experience the experiences he would have us experience. And so he invites us to play a part in the jobs that he is doing. We are the tools that he uses, in a sense, to accomplish his purposes. From Jesus' first disciples who were commissioned as fishers of men, to the Great Commission when Christ told his disciples and the church after them to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he had commanded them and girding them with the promise that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. We are one body with many parts, each part to be exercised to the Lord's glory, doing different things, but doing them all for his glory. We are to love our Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to be a city set upon a hill so that others might see our good works and might glorify God as a result. We do this work because of God's gracious condescension. That is one of the reasons why we work. And much as a potter squeezes clay into the form of of the vessel that he wants to mold it into, so too God has formed us in order that we might be useful for his purposes. And so we see our second point that work is God's glory made apparent in man. In verse 7 we read that God formed the man from the dust of the ground. This word formed literally literally could mean squeezed into shape. It is literally the word that would be used of a potter as he takes the dirt, the clay in his hands and molds it into the thing that he would have it be. And there is a dignity involved here, is there not? There is a level of care and of precision and of artistry that God is exercising in the creation of the man that he has not heretofore exercised in the creation of the other animals, for instance. Here he is taking his time. He is carefully 
and artistically making man, getting his hands dirty, if you will. And so we see that man is thus created in God's image. And it would be easy for us, in light of this, to become prideful, to deem this as our being extra special. But John Calvin has a great quote about this. He says that though we were formed in the image of a man, and this is incomparably the highest nobility to have been formed in the image of God, he said, lest man should use it as an occasion of pride, their first origin is placed immediately before them, whence they may learn that this advantage was adventitious. For Moses relates that man had been in the beginning dust of the earth. Let foolish men now go and boast of the excellency of their nature. And Calvin goes on to say, he must be excessively stupid who does not hence learn humility. He is right. We must learn humility when we consider our origins, created from the dirt of the ground. From dirt. How, how lowly, how humbling can you be? The dirt. We need to be humble. God tells us throughout his word in the book of Proverbs and twice quoted in the New Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And grace is what we need. God's grace. We need it every step along the way. We need to remember that we need it in salvation, of course. For it is only by God's grace through faith that we can be saved. But even after being saved... By God's grace, we need to know that it is his grace that works in and through us to accomplish his purposes. For we see in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, even our works are a matter of God's grace. We are his workmanship, his work of art, if you will. And we are created by him. And if you created a work of art, this, this perfect work of art that you had, you would no doubt want to display it in a beautiful setting. And so it is with God. He too wanted to display his work of art in a beautiful setting. And so we read in verse 8 that God planted a garden in Eden. Now it's wrong for us to understand, as often we do, that Eden is the garden. Eden is actually a region. The garden was in Eden. Eden was to the east of, of Canaan. And, and the word literally means delight. So, and it was a delightful thing. And, and the garden, when we see the word garden, it would also be wrong for us to think a garden. I, I think garden, and I think, well, a couple of tomato plants, maybe some squash and some sunflowers. That's not the idea that is trying to be conveyed here when we see garden. It's more the idea of the pleasure garden of kings. Uncomparable beauty and pleasure. It's more like something like the, the palace gardens of Versailles outside of Paris, where, where one would find spread out over approximately 2,000 acres, you would find 200,000 trees and over 200,000 flowers which are planted annually. And 6 million visitors a year would attest to the beauty and magnificence and glory of those gardens. This is the kind of garden that God planted 
in Eden. In fact, when we look at this word garden in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word, the word is paradisios, from which we get our word paradise. And it truly was a paradise. It was a paradise. Everything was perfect. It was wonderful. It was pleasurable. There was nothing wrong. The Lord God planted this garden and he put the man there. And why did he put him there? Read in verse 8. He put him there to work the garden. That's why he put him there. He works because that is part of his imaging the God who created him. God is a God of work. And so work is a good thing. We don't always think of work as a good thing. But it is a good thing. And we image God when we work. Just look at God here. Work is not a demeaning thing. It is a glorious thing. God works in verse 4 by creating the heavens and the earth. In verse 5, says he had not caused it to rain, suggesting that he is the one who does cause rain. Verse 7, he formed the man. Verse 8, he planted a garden. Verse 9, he made to spring up trees. Verse 15, he took the man and put him in the garden. We see here that God is a God of work. And so it is that be part of being made in the image of God is we are to be people of work also. Remember that Jesus spent only the final three years of his life in what we would call full-time ministry. Before that, he was a carpenter. He was a worker. There is dignity in work. We must be careful not to make a spiritual secular division as if the spiritual work is important and the rest of the work is just something we do. I love the quote from Martin Luther. He said, even the scullery maid as she goes to milk the cow is engaged in God's service. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe when you go to work in the morning that you are engaged in God's service? Are you engaged in God's service? Or are you just punching the clock and waiting for eight hours to pass by? All of life, we are told by the word of God, is to be lived to the glory of God. Whatever we do is to be done for his glory. So we are to work excellently. We are to give an honest day's work, but not just a mediocre day's work. We should give an excellent day's work. Not just so we can get a promotion, but so that God could get glory. And we need to do this whether we're doing the job of a pastor, for instance. For sure, that's absolutely true. But, but let's say you're a public servant, a police officer, a firefighter that would still hold true. Let's say you're a wife and a mother it still is true. Let's say you work in the factory. It still is true. Let's say you're retired. It still is true. Whatever we do, we must do to the glory of God. So it should not be a half-hearted effort when we work at things. We should work at them excellently to his glory. In verse 10, 
we turn our attention to a little bit of an excursus and we don't have a whole lot of time so I'm going to have to breeze through this rather quickly but but basically we read that a river flowed out of garden to out of Eden to water the garden and we see here this idea this theme of a life-giving water and that's a theme that is present throughout scripture we see we see it throughout scripture and Places we'd see that Psalm 46, verse 4, John 7, verse 38, or, or in Revelation 22, which we read together earlier today, which says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The idea here is that life, true life, proceeds from God. He is the source of life. Adam needed to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded of that. And as we are reminded of that, that our life is very much a gift from God, then that will encourage us to work excellently to his glory. And so we see, moving on to verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. And we turn our attention here to the third point that work is God's mandate given for man. We see here that that man was put on earth for a reason. Verse 15 tells us that it is to work the garden and to keep it. That was why he was placed there, to work it and to keep it. Work is a good thing. All is right in the world at this point. There is no sin. The world has not fallen. Work is not burdensome. It is not painful. It is a good thing. It's an enjoying thing. It's a fulfilling thing. And Adam is working the garden. Unfortunately, it's not that way for all of us, is it? I have what I consider honestly to be the greatest job in the world. I, I enjoy it more than I could possibly imagine any other job. And I am blessed beyond belief to have it. And I am so thankful to God and to all of you that I can have this job. Even so, there are days and moments where it's not altogether enjoyable. There are hard times. There are disappointing times. There are troublesome times. Are painful times. Yet that's not how it was for Adam in the garden. And I'm assuming for you in your jobs, you have the same troubles, the same pains, the same difficulties. What, what is different? Why, why is it that Adam was able to work in, in a paradise where everything is perfect and it was enjoyable and perfect and wonderful and we work and it is burdensome and hard and painful. Well, the answer to that question is found in Genesis as well. We see here in verse 17 what my English teachers back in high school would have called a little bit of foreshadowing. We see, starting in verse 16, I guess, actually, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we don't need to turn to chapter 3 to find out what happens, do we? 
If you have children, I'm sure you know what happens next. If you ever were a child, I'm sure you know what happens next. Even if you just have walked a day on earth, you know what happens next. When God says you can have fruit from every tree of the garden, just not this one. I saw a cartoon recently. It, it had two men walking across a parking lot. And right where the signs would normally say no parking in these spaces, instead of saying no parking, it said no juggling machetes and had arrows pointing to a certain area. And the one man turns to the other man as he's walking across this parking lot and says, hey, you know, all of a sudden I have this, this urge to start juggling machetes. Aren't we that way? All we need to do is, is be told that we can't do something, that we can't have something. And immediately, we want it. And that, of course, is what happened in chapter 3. They took of the fruit that they were not to take of. They took of it. They sinned. And creation fell. And when we disobey God, we have the same punishment that Adam had. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's not just physical death that entered the world with Adam's sin. It was also spiritual death. And we must realize, as one commentator put it, that in the biblical worldview, not only is spiritual death every bit as real as physical death, it is by far the more terrible of the two. Chapter 3 goes on to tell us that Adam, this son of God, this representative man, as a result of his sin, was banished from the garden. And his work became difficult and toilsome. And so it is that even in this day, our labors are laborious. They're difficult. They're hard. They're painful. But there is a solution. There is a solution that the Bible gives solution is that when we work, we should do the works of God. Now, what do I mean when I say do the works of God? Well, Jesus spoke about this in John 6, when he said, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God... God the Father has set his seal. And then, then those who were with him, they asked him, they said, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, he, he said, this is the work of God. And it's interesting at this point, Jesus could have said anything. This is the work of God. Read your Bible and go to church. He could have said, this is the work of God. Be nice to your neighbors and help out the poor. He could have said, this is the work of God. Make sure you follow a whole long set of rules and don't deviate from them at all. But that's not what Jesus said. Note how he answers in John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The work of God is that we would have faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, sent for us, trusting in him, depending on him. You see, the book of Genesis explains why work is hard 
and it also explains why we need saving, but it finally points us toward the one who is our Savior. It points us to that one. For in Genesis 3, God, when speaking to the deceiver, when speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God promises one who will come, one who is the son of woman, but one who we will also find is the son of God, a representative for all mankind, one who will come and defeat the enemy, but when he defeats the enemy, it will not be without injury to himself. So the next time you're working in your yard and it becomes difficult because of the thorns and the thistles and the weeds. Don't just think about how hard the work is. Think about Adam's sin. Think about your sin. Think about how those thorns are there because of sin. But don't just think about sin. Think also about your Savior. For thorns were not just a difficulty introduced to our work, but thorns were also placed upon the brow of Christ Jesus in the form of a crown as he hung on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin, literally bearing our curse. And so his blood poured out and offered cleansing from our sin. This Labor Day weekend... And every other day as well, for for that matter, let us remember, while our work is important to God, ultimately what is most important is the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross. As he died, our death, and offers us new life. As the hymn writer put it, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What a beautiful promise. Look to Christ Jesus. Look to him for forgiveness. Look to him for salvation. Cling to him. For the perfect and just God of the universe is satisfied to look on his payment as being sufficient to cover your sins. Cling to the one who proclaims, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you indeed that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And we thank you even for the thorns that inhabit the earth, that they might be a reminder to us of our sin and of your saving grace. 
Teach us about you always. May we always depend on your work and not our own. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is actually uh, in the insert in your bulletin.